You're listening to a recent Abbey Theatre talk. You can get more information on future talks in the series by visiting abbeytheatre.ie. Good evening. Welcome to the Abbey Theatre. Nice to see everybody. Hello. Um, my name is Phil Kingston. I'm, I'm the Community Education Manager here and co-curator of the talks. Um, uh, we try in the uh, Community Education Department to, to seek out the voices that are ordinarily heard as part of our, our mission, as it were. And, and through the talks program, we try to listen to different perspectives of what's going on in the main stages and the peacock stage of the Abbey. Um, the play Quietly by Emma Cafferty, which is shown here at the moment, is a play that asks us some profound questions, and some difficult questions about um, Northern Ireland, about conflict, about about the past, about how to reconcile the past. Um, it's a very um, bold play, very brave play, the way they ask those questions, and it's a, an intense and riveting play to watch. So, has everyone here seen this? Great. Um, are the things I said true? Yeah. Absolutely, exactly, exactly. Um, at the same time, this is, this is going to be an evening of questions which we find out how people get to the point where they can deliver work of that intensity. And um, so, so we, we're very happy and very pleased that um, Paddy O'Kane, Patrick O'Kane, has agreed to talk to us tonight about his work, and particularly about this book, Active Voices, there you go, that word again, um, in which he, he interviewed a wide range of different performers about their work and about their life. We decided, though, it would be good to have somebody who's really good at asking questions. So we asked Lynette Moran, who is uh, also a performer, um, as well as a producer um, um, of, of Live Collision, uh, and the curator of the Bite Size Festival, who asks questions about what is performance, what is theatre, penetrating questions about, about such things. So she's going to be asking the questions tonight. And one of the things that Lynette is particularly good at, and in conversation with her, she's, she's talked about this, is persuading or suggesting to actors that they too can make theatre as well. Instead of just being interpreters of other people's uh, theatre, other people's words, they too can make their own theatre. I just want to read something from um, Paddy's introduction, in which she says, it cannot be useful if one set of artists, actors, do not feel enabled to participate fully in the creative discussions which underpin how and why we are making theatre. That theme seemed to emerge from this book, his interviews with these actors. So hopefully uh, that will be something that will be examined tonight. Uh, and lastly, I'd just like to say another reason why you should buy this book, or you know, borrow it from somebody, yeah? um, is, is because um, this is, it's the complete opposite of the celebrity interview. Paddy asks questions of actors, and he doesn't stop asking them. You get to the point where you think, oh right, that's about the length of the celebrity interview. And it goes on about three more, three times as long. And the questions are dogged, and he kind of gets to the heart of things, and he pursues things. So, hopefully we'll have some of those insights tonight. So, Lynette Warren and Paddy O'Kane. Okay. And um, I think uh, we'll, we'll have a little look through the background of the book and how the book came about and some of the voices that are in the book. And um, then it would be great to open up some questions to the floor and yeah, get some insights from people's experience in the morning. So um, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you make your way towards being an actor? Uh, it was entirely accidental, as probably a lot of actors are. Uh, we were press ganged into making up the audience for the school play when I was 13 in Belfast and uh, it had such an immediate visceral impact on me 
that's a very overused word, but it really was. It left me a physical force in my chest. I couldn't actually leave the seat um, at the end, but which was entirely unexpected. My thing at all came sport, and it was the closest thing I'd ever had. So the, my response was so physical in terms of its impact on me. Uh, I just kind of clocked it that that's what I wanted to do that one day. But then I did. I proceeded to do nothing about that, and just carried on playing sport. And then, as chance would have it, uh, again a really irregular experience. We had an actress lodging with us. who was performing at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast. And then, within two days, or, or three or four days each of this, uh, I was taken to see her perform. Again, we we weren't really theatre going uh, household. Mm-hmm. Uh, by chance really and the the experience was really really similar and again I just clocked it and thought okay I want to do that but I really didn't know anything about it and um, I'd been to see uh, lots of films and things like that I've watched TV I've never considered ever being uh, an actor so it was absolutely the theatre thing that did it for me and it was to do with it was so it was because they were there in front of me, and you could hear them breathing, you could see the mistakes, you could see them, it was something to do, it, it was just electric, the atmosphere, and then it was something that I've always kind of sought out as well. Then um, when I go to the theatre again, now as a more seasoned theatre goer, but also as a practitioner, you know, so I kind of, kind of make that point of contact so uh, visceral. As I first experienced it. Was there a direct relationship between that physical response and your sporting activities? Did you recognise something in that that similar? Yeah, I wasn't really able to articulate it, but absolutely. It was entirely to do with that physical impact. I got a buzz from just from sitting in the auditorium watching this event, which was really similar to the buzz I got from. From uh, playing sports, and I played a lot of sport, you know, so uh, I just loved it. I was kind of an adrenaline junkie, I suppose. Yeah. And when you, um, so that live experience, I spoke to someone once who explained the live theatre experience as being the flesh and bone of um, performance experiences, and uh, I think sometimes that's similar when you watch sport and you realise that it's flesh and bone that makes the activity happen. Yeah, I remember uh, I was 16 and my 16th birthday present was to go and see Manchester United play against Manchester City and the uh, Manchester Derby. And uh, it was absolutely thrilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd never been to Old Trafford before, yeah, I was a huge Manchester United fan. And uh, it was in the days when everybody stood together and crammed together. And I remember at one point taking, just taking a few seconds out to look around me at the um, well, the crowd, but the audience, mm-hmm. and uh, it was amazing because they were all really focused, mm-hmm. and at this particular point, in a point of hatred <laughs> of the other, of the other uh, team, the other uh, fans and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was com- it was a complete community experience, yeah. and the, of the sort that we can only really uh, dream about mm-hmm. in uh, making theatre. You know, yeah. uh, if we could get even close to that, it would be remarkable. 
And in um, Alwyn Furrer's interview, she talks a little bit about uh, when she's relating to the kind of everyday activity of being a performer. She talks about it as a daily training, um, almost like an athlete who's training for a marathon. Um, and I wondered, so when you decided then, there must have been a point when you decided actually I'm going to make something of this and go and study and train. Um, first of all, how did that happen? And secondly, did you find the same satisfaction when you were training in terms of that everyday um, experience within yourself physically that was responding to the work you were doing? Yeah, well, what I did was I, I went and worked on building sites in London uh, for a while. And then I realised I didn't really want to be doing that when I was in my 50s. So uh, I went to university and I studied uh, English and Drama in Manchester. And I spent half my time, uh, it was a kind of schizophrenic ex experience there, because I spent half my time at the University Football Club and the other half in the Drama Department, doing as much as I possibly could and varying from one to the other with uh, intensive, equal intensity, you know, uh, equally dissatisfied by both and unsatiated by either. But um, uh, I spent as much time as I could in that drama studio. You know, I did various things, you know, I designed shows, I, I uh, helped light shows, I stage managed shows, uh, and I acted uh, as much as I could. And then um, at the end of that, I was being encouraged not to go to drama school in the room because apparently I had this raw quality which was very rare. Uh, but I kind of just knew that I wouldn't have lasted uh, one six week run, never mind one year or several years of an actual career, if I didn't go and sort out how I spoke. And I don't mean accent, I mean kind of the technique of projecting, speaking to uh, audiences of, you know, sometimes thousands over a sustained period of time. That was one reason I went, and also because I just want, so, uh, somebody had said to me, when I said I wanted to be an actor, I said, oh, I said, I said oh, he said to me, what, what are you going to do when you leave? I said, oh, I'm going to be an actor, I'm going to go to drama school. I said, what do you want to do that for? I said, well, because I love it. And uh, he said, but you do realise you're just going to play thug psychopaths and terrorists. This was in the late 80s in Manchester. Uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a wee bit of a stubborn gift about me, I have to say. So I said, well, I'll, I'll show you. <laughs> and uh, I kind of did it. So when I went to drama school, to Central in London, and they did teach me or at least they helped me develop all those uh, kind of technical disciplines of voice production and stuff. But also, they broadened my whole palette in a way that I hadn't previously imagined would be possible. So it's a good experience in that way. But also, having been to university, I was more, uh, I was a much more diligent and thorough student than I had been in Manchester. Partly because I had that experience already and I knew kind of what I wanted. So actually the experience of being drama school was brilliant because then I was doing all day every day what I'd always been making time to do. But it was also frustrating because the pace at which they were delivering 
this training was kind of too slow for me. I kind of just wanted it, you know, I wanted it all now. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn over the course of that time that uh, quite often you only learn things retrospectively. You know, so quite often I'll sit for the 10 or 12 week term thinking, well, I'm not doing anything, I'm not doing anything. And then during the Christmas or Easter vacation, realize actually what I had been learning. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's, that's translated itself later into things like, I, I'm a good believer now in, in the preparation mm -hmm. as a way of uh, learning about uh, what it is you're doing. So it's just like, you do something and you can leave it for a bit. And you don't even necessarily have to think consciously about it. But it's just the fact that you know you're returning to it means that you're just working your way there. An example of that would be uh, I did an old McCaffrey play called Co Comfort, which was a one man show about, uh, uh, about uh, an alcoholic man who had uh, in, a, in order to try and break. Uh, a, psych, a cycle of alcoholic dysfunction had uh, smothered his uh, child because he was and he, in, the, in an alcoholic delusional uh, haze, thinking that he was saving the child, and of course he was then forever torment, tormented by that as well. But we so we did that, uh, and we took it, we did it in Belfast, and then we took it around Ireland, and then. We kind of knew we'd be returning to it, but we uh, it was a year later. Mm -hmm. And when we returned to it, the, or the initial production had, we had thought had been quite Spartan, and that was always our intention, was that it should be really quite on the bone. And, um, you know, just not pulling any punches. And of course, when we got back to it, for the first, we had one week to rehearse it, and then for the first three or four days, we would dance around it because we didn't want to go there again and just think, oh, And then we realized, actually, and also because we thought, oh, well, we know how to do this. And then we realized, actually, no, we have to change absolutely everything. So it all went out the window, we started again from scratch, and we stripped back what we thought had been really pared back already something even more uh, brutal <laughs> and, um, and, and it, it was better for it and part of, part of that reason, part of the reason for doing that was because we couldn't just repeat what had been done because that it wouldn't have been a live transaction between us and the, the new audience. It was, uh, we were in a different city and we were in a different environment entirely, and we had to recreate it for that. And we had, we had to relearn all those old lessons about it being a live transaction, always, 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 between any given audience on any given night. Mm -hmm. That's why people say, oh, how do you get, how do you get through a long run, say the same lines, all that stuff. But it is very difficult to explain, but entirely different every night because the audiences are different and that, that the contract is between the audience and the people on stage mm -hmm. that's that's the relationship that's the key relationship not between the actors on stage mm -hmm. but that relationship is the key relationship and because 
the composition of the audience is different every night, then the event is different every night. Do you think in that particular experience, because um, you had performed the piece live before, that that was a key kind of factor in why it changed the second time, as opposed to if it had been something that you rehearsed the year before, but hadn't gone in front of an audience, do you think it would have dramatically changed over that period of time, or your approach would have changed? Do you think that was a, a deciding factor? The fact that we'd actually performed it? To an audience. Uh, I, know, uh, I can't really answer that because we did before, but uh, probably not, because although we had gleaned certain insights from performing it, again, it's, the principle would have held true that uh, we would have rehearsed it in one place and then taken it somewhere else and prepared it for that place. And also just that thing about it sitting in you and uh, it... Uh, Resigning in there, it just it bonds what you're doing in a very uh, subliminal way. Yeah. In, in a way that's sometimes I have real reservations, for example, about the function and the role of research. You know, because I think, well, if I'm playing a soldier, do I need to know all the stuff about what soldiers do? Because if I spend all my time doing that, mm -hmm. I'm just researching what soldiers do, not what this soldier in this situation is doing. Mm -hmm. You know, and is that really going to help me be specific mm -hmm. to this story that I'm telling to this audience, or is it just going to be some generic thing? Mm -hmm. And I suppose the usefulness of it comes with the fact, just the fact that it's there. Without it being, it's just there, mm -hmm. and it's in you, and you don't have to do any more than that. So you're, in a way, your physical self is holding the information, holding the Yeah, it, yes, it holds information, mm -hmm. which you don't need to be desperate to show anybody. Mm -hmm. It will be, it will be available to people because of who you are mm -hmm. and what you're doing in that situation. And can you tell us a little bit about, it's been the research, the journey that you made towards um, the book in terms of the Nesta Fellowship? Yeah. How did that come about? Completely out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nesta is the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts in the UK. And even now I can't really tell you an awful lot about them because they almost trade in mystery. They, I got a phone call out of the blue saying that I had been nominated for a fellowship uh, anonymously and apparently what they do is they have a network of, I suppose, talent scouts, to carry on the sporting um, analogy, uh, who um, identify, in their words, identify individuals <coughs> of um, uh, who have achieved a level of excellence, uh, who they feel uh, it would be worthwhile investing in, in order that they can continue to be innovative or to uh, deepen and enrich their, their own personal professional practice. 
So that extends abroad, uh, across quite a broad range of the sciences, and technologies, and the arts. Somebody had identified me uh, in their wisdom, and um, they asked me to apply for this fellowship. And I said, oh, right, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, oh, right, okay. So then I had to go and think about what it was I wanted to do. And then that's when I started, uh, I'd always been kind of interested in, um, or been increasingly interested in uh, the processes and in the, the creative hierarchies that go to making, to make the, uh, the, the, the mainstream theatre, which is what I work in most nearly entirely. Uh, and the reason I've become interested in those was in 2000 I'd been invited to become an artistic associate at Nottingham Playhouse and I had directed uh, young actors and local professional actors in Nottingham uh, in workshop productions of uh, unperformed plays and I really enjoyed the experience because what I had to do then was to articulate what I what I was doing and to adjust or and sometimes learn up well I call it and learn from what they were doing. Uh, so then that led on to a, a, a director's course at the National Theatre Studio, which was a three week residential, which was your day was, it was six day a week, your day was split into two sessions and some t some uh, tutors would do two sessions and some would do one. So you had over the uh, 18 sessions, I'd say you had maybe 12 to 15 tutors would come in and talk or uh, engage us in practice, um, which was entirely to do with directing. And a couple of things really stood out in that experience, which was when it well, it became apparent quite early on that I, most of my experience was as an actor. My stock fell completely through the floor within the group of students. And um, it took a while to rebuild that. In fact, it only was really rebuilt because some of the incoming directors knew me as an actor and had worked with, some of them had worked with me as an actor. They were surprised to see me there and they became slightly deferential because what they were doing essentially was talking about what actors want, what actors need, how you deal with actors and, and stuff like that. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Well, probably sometimes because I hadn't thought that that's what directors really think. And also because I just thought, well, how do you know that? Because I know, for example, you have never acted uh, not even as a student, uh, and, and even if you have acted as a student, you quickly left behind to become a director. So how do you really know what actors want? So that need let them. It's a really good course. Don't get me wrong. It was really good because it really went, uh, spent a lot of time unpicking directors' uh, processes, which therefore led me to think about doing the same with actors and I really I realised as well that everything that had been written about actors or acting was really by uh, 
academics and directors and um, they'll refer to celebrity biographies there in, in the outset. There hadn't really, with one or two notable exceptions, there hadn't really been anything written about acting and about the experience of being an actor uh, uh, by actors, by working <coughs> actors and indeed non-working actors. You know, I was kind of interested to see how people who don't necessarily work a lot, how they sustain that uh, acting ambition, that dream or that determination to carry on being an actor when uh, opportunities are really limited and uh, what do people, you know, what do actors uh, find useful and helpful uh, in order that, this is the idea behind the fellowship in in order that we might begin a, a further conversation about if you view actors as a resource, as a creative resource, how do you get the best use out of that resource? Uh, in the current hierarchies, our actor, in the current creative hierarchies of making mainstream theatre, are actors best placed to get the most out of them? Uh, or are they only ever going to be now uh, the point of delivery for somebody else's uh, creative vision? And this come from conversations you've had with other actors where if this was private conversations that were happening that you wanted to articulate wider or right. had you yourself felt that your resources weren't utilised in the way Well I've had a very lucky career in that respect, you know, I've always played great parts in great plays and great theatres, you know. But I've been also witnessed that even within those rehearsal situations, uh, there's a hierarchy within the room. And if you're playing a big part Essentially, the director listens to you more, and uh, if you're playing a small part, he doesn't. And that's not necessarily useful, because what the person playing a small part might have to offer is just as valuable as what the person playing a big part has. So why are you not allowing that person the opportunity to? Um, to be creative and to have an input into the discussion. I'll tell you a really good example of that is uh, he's in the book and he's now become extremely celebrated as a auteur artist uh, and that's Tim Crouch. I worked with Tim Crouch at the beginning of my career and I, I was playing Brutus at the Royal Exchange in Julius Caesar and he played the soothsayer and he had the most frustrating time because uh, he wasn't getting the time of day and now he's lauded as this great thinker of theatre and creator of theatre and you just think, well, that's mainstream theatre's loss actually because that, he was there, he was willing and, and there wasn't a, I'm not saying anybody was a bad person or anything like that but there was no possibility for him within the creative hierarchy that we were working in to make a contribution beyond the limited uh, scope of his lines. And I just think that's that's not useful. For me, one of the key questions as a theatre practitioner is, is this useful? Is what I'm doing useful? So what's it useful to? It's useful to tell the story. What do you need to know then? 
if you're telling the story, you need to know what the story is and who it's for. Uh, and if actors aren't engaged in those big ideas, then they're not going to be really able to make, to make those contributions, which they could be and, and should be doing. It's interesting because in Tim's interview, he talks about in the UK looking at the Uxbridge kind of. It, well, he talks first of all about programming of venues and talks about how it might be actually useful sometimes to have actors' voices within that context. Yeah. Um, and, and then he talks about the kind of the, the business, I suppose, in the way of saying that uh, in the UK it's quite known that a lot of Uxbridge graduates are kind of the the hierarchy within the, the theatre structure. And and I wondered, have in part of each of writing this book, what, did you notice that that was something that was travelling across all areas around ethnicity, race, gender, and educational background, socioeconomic background? Were they informing factors in terms of those hierarchical relationships within the, the rehearsal room? Or did you feel that that was something that was left outside but actually was more about? The playing on the table, and you had the high part for who had the important roles. Uh, that's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, I think Montessori, for example, addresses the ethnicity issue mm -hmm. uh, in the book. Uh, she ended up taking occasion to court for racial discrimination. Uh, and she discovered, and when, when she was uh, making that application, she asked to see the uh, structure of the, of the theatre management. So they had the uh, board directors, the artistic director, chief executive. And um, this wasn't just a uh, theoretical or conceptual structure, this was pay scales, everything. And um, her issue was to do with race, uh, but there were no black people. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, just before I said that, they, they went down to so the board directors, the artistic executive directors, then the senior management, then the middle management, the production management and stuff. Uh, and then below that were actors, and below that were cleaners. You know, I kind of said it all really. Uh, and also, the only black people in her case were uh, the actors and the cleaners. And she was being represented by the Commission for Racial Equality. And she said, she said I realised it was a more complex situation than that. However, from their point of view, it was astounding. The Commission for Racial Equality, it was just astounding that they, because they were saying, well, you can't make theatre without these people, i.e. the actors, mm -hmm. and yet you can make theatre without all the others, theoretically. Mm -hmm. And yet the structure that you have in place is that the actors are at the bottom of the pile, of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's, that affects, well, their pay, but also it affects uh, the impact they can make on the fabric of the building in terms of the delivery of what the building is there for, which is the art. 
and she was really a fantastic teacher, uh, uh, particularly for Shakespeare and for restoration comedies and style comedies. You know, she great uh, great experience of that form of work, and uh, and then there were other actors. Uh, so, like I said, Tim Crouch and Majestola Bio, who have both become uh, uh, writer performers, writer performer directors. Uh, as a result of their experiences within the mainstream, but also because they found that uh, that they had they were interested in new forms of expression as well, mm -hmm. which uh, broke beyond uh, the well-made play. Mm -hmm. uh, continuing that uh, theme of uh, slightly beyond the mainstream, uh, Jared MacArthur has worked extensively with Howard Barker, uh, who is a European giant in the theatre, but in the UK he's kind of uh, excluded, uh, even more than ever Bond, say. And in fact, uh, he's, just had, uh, he's just had his first ever production at the National Theatre, even though they've done festivals of his work in, uh, in Paris and Germany and Australia. So, um, so all the different perspectives, uh, but also, they, but all, all of them also work in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of interested to see how those different perspectives affected how those actors work in the mainstream and how they, how they related to the mainstream work. And from us, there's no, the last few minutes we've got loads of questions I want to ask you, but just to say that for the proficiency, are there any One thing that was striking as I was having the conversations with how many of the actors said I've never been asked that before? Which was, and they were delighted to be able to have the opportunity to have an opinion on those things. Uh, but it was also slightly depressing <laughs> that they hadn't ever been asked that before. Uh, when I uh, said what the book was going to be about to my Nesta managers, they said, oh God, that's going to be great, isn't it? That's going to be like one big green room conversation. You, you must talk about that all the time. <laughs> and then, of course, I, I said, no, actually, we never have these conversations and more is busy. Mm -hmm. And in some way, that's the point. Mm -hmm. So that's stuck with me that those actors who are all really experienced and distinguished in their own way have only really had this opportunity to engage with those types of conversations. Mm -hmm. um, Do you think that's a kind of learned behaviour in a way that those conversations don't happen intimately amongst actors, but actually there's, do you feel there's an acceptance that happens through someone's career that they realise actually that's not what I talk about, I remain resilient in that form and like prove productive in other ways? Yeah, well, it goes right back to, well, two things about that. I think that goes right back to actor training. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I remember going to Central from university and I, Manchester University was uh, a hotbed of uh, student political activity. So uh, everything in the drama department there would have been uh, uh, considered through the prism of political relevance, uh, political ideology, uh, all that stuff. I was really shocked when I went to Central that there was absolutely no conversation of that nature at all. So there was never a conversation about the big idea of the play. Actors were only encouraged to think of the minutiae of the moment, which of course is what you need, but the moment to what end? What, you know, what if I'm just doing the moment, what is it? Where's it going? Who's it for? Uh, why are we doing this? And the other is, uh, the other is, there's no doubt that uh, as actors, in, particularly in the current uh, economic but also artistic climate, that uh, we kind of reside in culture of fear, which isn't useful. It's not useful to, uh, to uh, artistic creation, and it's not useful to actors as uh, artistic beings within that environment. It's, I find it particularly acute here in Dublin, frankly, mm -hmm. because, because there are so few producing houses the actors are genuinely afraid to upset the apple cart for fear of not uh, being able to wear them. And it goes beyond, unfortunately, it goes beyond just you know, per mere personality clashes. This is to do with whole hierarchies of how you make it, how you make the theatre. And I think it's really regrettable that we, in the 21st century, are in a situation where one group of artists, the actors, cannot have a candid conversation with other artists, directors, and they are artists, uh, and designers, and have a mature, candid conversation about how to best deliver what we're agreeing to deliver. I just think it's real. It's a real shame because everybody gets shortchanged. The artists get shortchanged, and the audiences get shortchanged. And you have half of the auditorium as a result. And do you think that fear that you talk about, um, like we would assume that that fear then impacts on risk in terms of the risk that actors and directors and performers are willing to take. Um, and I suppose through the book have you found any solution to that fear or have you found any other platforms where that risk to counteract that fear can take place? Well, in a way, the, the book is a, is a starting point only. It doesn't, and we haven't come to the answers. It's just a, it's a, it's a genuine offering in that respect. Uh, for the beginning of a broader conversation. There are other dimensions of fear in which fear has been identified within the book as a useful starting point for creative um, invention. 
your fear of failure or, uh, drives you onwards, or fear of the unknown is actually what it's all about. You know, I'm going to embrace that fear, and and then that's when you can, when you're actually at the moment of creating something, that's when you can engage with uh, something which is genuinely creative because it's not you can't simply manage it. You have to engage, and what you're doing is you're engaging in a because you don't know what it is you're engaging with. It becomes absolutely a present tense transaction. And back to the beginning of the conversation, that's what theatre is. It's all present tense transaction. There was something in that fear as well around. Um, I think in your interview with Owen, you asked her about you know her relationship with the Arts Council and her relationship with funding bodies, and you asked her, you know, how how did she teach herself about those things, or who was the person who led her in terms of what's happening, how you apply for stuff, how you go about things. She talked talk very much about taking that responsibility on herself as yeah. well. Um, so, but do you feel like there was some response that kind of opened up possibilities to kind of maybe think about things in a different way? For me personally? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that one particular, mm -hmm. uh, all of conversation on how she just goes out and does it, makes it, and uh, her sheer dedication to what she does, now whether you like it or not, you know, whether you like what she produces or not, is another matter, but you cannot doubt her dedication, and her, her singular dedication to her work as an artist, and also that uh, combination of her art is pure, but also her her way of making sure that the art doesn't isn't just seen in her own bathroom that it gets out to an audience. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really quite inspiration. Because all too often, especially the mainstream theatre, uh, we actors uh, tend to think of it we're regarded as non-initiative. Uh, and so we're dependent on other people to even have the idea, the start-up idea. So it's really heartening to hear all of the story and how she can she creates her own work. Because mm -hmm. I wondered as well in terms of you know the, the capability of the actor like we spoke earlier on to have a dialogue with the audience through their performance and through their work, how that relationship between portraying actor and the performer and the audience is such an intimate one, but actually it's fundamentally one of the most important relationships the most important relationship in theatre. So therefore, are there ways, do you think, to utilise that relationship? Um, in a way, I suppose, could make a little man really saying, is there a way that actually audiences and artists and performers, actors, can find a dialogue together? How, what do you mean, a little man? Well, the only other factors that get in the way of that direct conversation, so like the hierarchy and so on. But I suppose it comes back to what you're suggesting then initiation of Yeah, I mean, in, the term, in, in terms of the performance of the piece, I don't think there is necessarily a barrier, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, and I, I don't want to appear to be anti-director either, because, uh, you know, some people say, oh, well, you know, we've only had directors for a hundred years. And we've had actors for thousands. Um, yes, but there was obviously a need for them. 
it wouldn't have come about if there wasn't a need for them, you know. And it doesn't do to say, oh, well, we've only had the registry for 100 years. The fact is, we do need them. They are artists, and they are, uh, if Montessori describes them as our super audience, you're, only, you're one and only guaranteed audience. Uh, and they are also, so it's for them to feedback constantly and to enable and encourage. But uh, well, amongst their many roles, it, our, their job is to do those things so that the um, people performing can have confidence and can commit to what it is they're doing and they can have courage to do all those things. I don't think, uh, I mean, it's only bad directors who are obstacles in that respect. Talk a little bit about you and your relationship, your collaboration with Owen. Uh, comes across in the field like that's a significant collaboration for you, for your career, and could you tell us a little bit about what that relationship is like? Yeah, again, that's kind of accidental as well. Um, Owen and I are from the same part of Belfast, and in fact, he was when I was about. 14 or 15, the youth club in our area was reopened and having been closed for a very long time. And it was a new building and everything. He was uh, one of the youth leaders and I was one of the members. And then we also played Gaelic football together uh, on minor teams and reserve and senior teams and stuff. You know. and Although there's a significant gap, he was, he's about four or five years older than me, which at that age is really significant. Mm -hmm. you know? So we, we, it's not like we were mates. And then I, when I had finally become an actor, ironically my first ever job was in Belfast. And I was walking home from rehearsals and I bumped into him. And I, we just had a chat and said, oh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm an actor. And um, he said, oh, right, I, I'm writing a play myself at the moment. I said, oh, well, that's great, you know. And we left at that. And then it was only a year, quite a few years later, maybe seven, seven, another seven years passed. And I bumped into him again at the National Theatre Studio in London, um, where he was the writer of residence. And I was doing something in co production for the court. And um, he asked me to come to a reading for him of this play. And, uh, that's when it all kicked off really, I suppose, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, in its simplest terms, I get him and he gets me, you know. Mm -hmm. I like what he does and he likes what I do. Mm -hmm. And there is a certain degree of simpatico. Mm -hmm. uh, certain of his plays, he writes in a rhythm which is really familiar to me, so certain of his plays, I've only I've only ever heard those expressions on the Ormer Road. So it's not even that they're written in Belfast rhythms, they're written in Ormer Road rhythms, uh, which I just get. And uh, I think he appreciates that. Um, and it hasn't been really by design, but uh, I think he's talked kindly about me. 
to uh, directors and things, and I've got kind of a link to artistic directors and things. And, um, and when we work together, either as, uh, so he's directed me in a Hedgehog play, and he's also directed me in one of his own plays. So really, we have that kind of relationship which is candid, and it's about the work, and we agree on a lot of things, but we disagree on things as well, but we're very happy to have the conversation, however difficult it may be, because we know, one, it's not personal, and two, it's about the work, it's about the work for him, and he knows that it's about the work for me. Okay. So you transcend that personal um, claim to reach something that's more important in terms of the work? Yeah, and we engage in those conversations about, you know, what it is we're doing, who we're doing it for, and how best we can achieve that then. And sometimes that means just completely, so like for this play, uh, quietly, I don't know, the, uh, I don't know at what stage it went to print, but uh, there were certainly uh, huge edits made of an already very uh, sparse play text, uh, and they were made in response to uh, uh, us asking questions of him about what's this speech here for? Uh, this uh, this speech sounds like your voice. It doesn't sound like uh, Jimmy's voice, or it doesn't sound like Ian's voice. So I can hear you there, but I can't hear you at any other point in the play. So. What is it we're trying to do with this? And so, in one instance, a huge speech of about two pages was cut and replaced with one line. So, you know, he's quite courageous in that respect. And, uh, uh, and that just, you know, uh, enables us to refuse to. Thanks for listening. You'll find many more Abbey Theatre talks available to listen back to, along with details of future talks in the series by visiting our website, abbeytheatre.ie.